Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACES Audio Podcast. I'm your host, Chad T. Grant, and this podcast is where we distill down a bunch of topics on evolutionary psychology, functional medicine, natural movement, and try to get some actual insight, actionable insights to empower and inspire all of you out there in the world doing your best to be healthy, happy humans. So today on the show, we have my good friend, Stephanie Welch. Stephanie Welch is a disruptive anthropologist, ancestral health advocate, and pioneer of the evolutionary feminism movement. Her work dives deep into commonly held beliefs and taboos that prevent us from attaining our full human potential. She's examined and regularly teaches about a wide ranging, wide variety of topics, including what constitutes a species appropriate diet, the benefits of walking and running barefoot, which I love to talk about, uh, the detrimental effects of male circumcision, um, and masculine and feminine interpersonal dynamics in a tribal versus modern society, all of which we're going to unpack in a bunch of exciting ways for you guys today. Her background includes a degree in classics and a master's in art history, and also many years as a professional massage therapist. And she is now a regular speaker at the Ancestral Health Symposium. You can find her online at recivilizedwoman.com and also on Patreon at patreon.com backslash recivilization. So Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. Glad to have you here. And as a little backstory for all of you, Stephanie and I actually first met along with uh, met my partner Natasha and I, as you all in the audience know, um, at Ancestral Health in Seattle a few years back, I believe, right? Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, and that was the first time I had an introduction to your work, which was a, I believe it was a poster on evolutionary feminism that really drew me in like a moth to a flame because having uh, my background in psychology and specifically evolutionary psychology, that was a really interesting thing. Like, what is this concept of, you know, not just feminism, um, but evolutionary feminism? And we've had some conversations, which maybe we could like briefly recap for the listeners here in terms of like maybe the differences between evolutionary feminism and traditional feminism, which I know that for myself um, as a man in the modern world and trying to balance my yin and yang, um, just wrapping up a, an FDN conference here in San Diego this last weekend, Paul Check was a speaker and he, he always so eloquently speaks about this uh, dynamic being a balanced human of having both the masculine and feminine and whether you're a man or woman developing the other side of the coin. So maybe Stefan, you could give us uh, a, a synopsis of evolutionary feminism and kind of what what that means, basically. Uh, sure. Yeah, that that was the topic that I that was the first time I brought that topic out um, in Seattle in 2017, where we met. Um, and yeah, ev evolutionary feminism definitely differs from modern feminism. You know, although modern feminism has definitely made some strides in working towards equality for men and women. It's also caused us some issues and it's, it's kind of uh, separated us from our, a lot of our connection to a, a deeper sense of masculinity and femininity. And um, that's, I, I think that's really contributed to some of the difficulties that we experience in the modern world. And so evolutionary feminism is, is definitely different and it's definitely about empowerment, but it's it, honestly, it's equally as much about empowering men as it is about women because 
men at this point often feel just as disempowered as women do um, with everything like the whole Me Too movement going on. And there's just a lot of uh, fear uh, going around and lots of uh, blame. Everybody's, you know, pointing fingers and um, the situation just isn't really that healthy. So looking at, uh, you know, I kind of use evolution, as you know, as a framework for understanding just about everything. Um, Definitely. And yeah, and, and, and uh, this just as much as anything. So it's trying to look back at the environment, you know, over the last um, couple of hundred thousand years or more of modern humans and how we came to be where we are today and what that environment and those, uh, those pressures that we experienced to, to survive and thrive in that environment, how they shaped our, both our biology and our psychology and using that to better understand how, how things, how we function in the modern world and, and how we dysfunction in the modern world because of the change in environment. So when it comes to feminism, it's about, um, it's about understanding that we, we evolved in tribal communities that were built around how we actually develop over time. Um, the, one of the most key different, uh, key um, aspects of how humans develop is our lengthy childhood dependency. And that actually puts very different pressures on the mother versus the father in uh, in evolutionary terms. And um, as women, because we have to spend so much energy for each offspring that we produce, and we have so few chances, we actually developed a much stronger tendency toward cooperation. And because men on an individual offspring basis ha have to invest fairly little initially and have effectively unlimited opportunities, there's much more of a competitive uh, basis for operating in that way. And that really, that really shaped our uh, communities and how we evolved so socially to, um, to bring women together to create communities because it was very advantageous for us. And then how we managed to get men to cooperate in the same environment. And nowadays, um, we have we've focused on this uh, this environment in which we have this nuclear family setting, and that didn't show up until after agriculture developed um, because the the needs and the environment were so different. And it's just important to understand that all of these things came about and how we see the modern world today as a process that developed over. Uh, the, I mean, the modern world really looking at the last 10,000 years or so uh, as compared to the previous, all the rest of history that was shaping how we, uh, how we function. And so that gives us a lot of insight into what it is that we actually need and how we could uh, shift society to be better in line with the needs that we have and to, to get closer to our full potential. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, a great synopsis of the kind of the 30,000 foot view of the evolutionary lens. And for me personally, like back in the day learning 
um, as a young student of psychology and then specifically evolutionary psychology, I had the privilege to learn from some of the old school greats at the University of California, Santa Barbara, that uh, uh, some people like Lita Cosmides and Don Simons, old school evolutionary psychologists who really credited with founding the, the field itself. Um, it was really a huge paradigm shift for me to go from traditional psychology, which was just kind of looking at looking at modern life, but through the lens, it, it's kind of like being zoomed in all the way on Google Maps where you're on like the street level view and you're just, you're looking for insights, but it really does help or it's even, I would say necessary to solve, especially the bigger, larger societal uh, cultural problems to zoom way out and look from that, really that bird's eye view and see what, what insights can we get from from looking at things from a much more ancestral perspective, like on the frame, like you're saying, of like 10,000 years or hundreds of thousands of years for things that are the really big questions, like we're going to uh, we're gonna get into a lot today, the theories about tribal living and um, evolutionary design was a keyword that we, we had discussed uh, recently about bringing together these concepts that have been pretty separate in a lot of ways or even diametrically opposed or positioned that way of say science versus spirituality maybe you can uh, speak to that a little bit absolutely you know you were saying about the different level views a second ago and we have this uh, tendency in the modern world to look at each individual case study and when things don't work we assume that the individuals or what they're doing is what's broken as opposed to this is what society has created for us and we're not operating from the right kind of baseline for success. So what's interesting is we've had different ways of kind of understanding the world over time. And, you know, in the, in the beginning, we looked to a lot of uh, kind of religious um, uh, ways of understanding things and uh, a lot of supernatural causes. And, you know, we, we, we tried to, get a sense through essentially beliefs and, and faiths of how the world works and why and what we should do. And then a ways down the road, empirical science came along and said, well, maybe we should actually observe what happens in the world and take note of that and take, take measurements and record and compare and use that data to understand what's going on and what we should do about it. And the thing about evolutionary design is it's kind of a marriage of both of these two things. You know, we can't actually go back and watch evolution happen. But if you believe that that's the process that brought us to where we are today, then that actually allows us to understand that we, we actually need to start with a different baseline for how we're going to interpret what's going on now. Because if we assume... You know, if you do an experiment and you have your control group that has no interventions, so to speak, uh, but that control group is subject to all of these confounding factors of the modern world that change what our species would have uh, actually been adapted to, that's going to change your experiment and that's going to change your data. And so I think it's very interesting to, and, and to me, this is kind of the only way to look at things now is understanding that what we see now is the result of all those pressures that happened on us throughout, you know, both our, our time as humans and everything that preceded that. And now added on all of the modern aspects of living that don't fit what our bodies and brains expect. And 
if we if we use that as our basis for understanding what's going on and what we need to do about it, I think it's it's as you say, kind of the the marriage between belief and science that I think has more to give us in terms of how we can again unlock our full potential as humans to understand ourselves that way. Yeah, that's uh, very well said in terms of yeah figuring figuring out the big picture between um these things just don't have to be so diametrically opposed i don't think there doesn't have to be this big rift between uh getting in touch with kind of the soul or the way that people describe the soul and things that have been traditionally viewed from the religious standpoint i I know a lot of people especially in our ancestral health community have have started to take a much broader approach of spirituality in terms of something that's more on almost like the metaphysical level um, that's more energetics and almost a cellular spirituality, if you will, um, that is not at all opposed to science. That's something that is honoring science. And I, I can't remember who it was, but I remember somebody, somebody like probably like Neil deGrasse Tyson or, uh, Tyson or somebody like that had probably said at some point like that there's so much beauty in nature and in the world that we don't need to really have religions. Uh, I know Sam Harris spoke on that as well, um, more on the, the kind of atheist, the beauty and atheism kind of a thing, which, which I very much share that belief in terms of like, we don't need to complicate it with additional stories. It's when you look under the hood in, in the natural world, just the human body, for example, is there's infinite amount of complexity <laughs> that's there to be, to be had just coming off of another, uh, yet another ancestral health or uh, functional medicine type conference with the functional diagnostic nutrition conference here in San Diego. This last weekend is just another heavy, deep dive for me into the, the infinite world of human biochemistry. And we're just one organism and, you know, ginormous universe. There's so much complexity and so much just cool things to see every time I look at uh, a book or pictures or documentary, anything that has to do with space in the universe it just blows my mind instantly that it's like wait a minute how many planets and how many just universes and things like this it's all they're all in the orders of billions and trillions uh, of any measurement unit that you have and it just it blows my mind that complexity of like it, it is almost like an egocentric viewpoint i think as humans that we need to then create make meaning out of the world with a bunch of additional <laughs> stories that that are somehow opposed to that it's uh, Again, uh, speaking of Paul Check, like I really appreciate that his viewpoint in terms of whole, like a whole person and whole entity is like the yin and the yang. It's very much like that with with the universe and our bodies and our. This fleshes out down to like the cultural and societal level too. That we're seeking, really, I think all of us in our community to be one with with the rest of the things <laughs> with our with the other people around us with our environments with the other creatures on the earth and then in the larger context of kind of the the whole universe i guess yeah and it's it's about how you want to get answers for how to achieve whether it's the sense of oneness or or anything from micro to macro levels is you know i've definitely seen it uh, said somewhere that you know there's the bible has an answer for everything well so does the concept of evolutionary design. There's something in there that helps us understand and explain uh, the situation and the solutions and things. Like, for example, having, I've often heard it 
question of uh, people who are atheists that uh, someone might say, well, where do you get your sense of morality from? And to me, that's a kind of a short-sighted question because it depends, it, it assumes that you depend on some sort of external moral authority to tell you what to do. When we find that actually, no matter how strong that is, people will always end up being driven by their internal emotions uh, mm -hmm. over that. So if we're able to understand what it is that, where emotions come from, like biologically, physi physiologically, and what kind of things trigger that and how we have similarities uh, in, in how brains are wired across the whole species, then that actually allows us to achieve a sense of understanding and empathy that's much more of an internal moral compass. And we can you know, come to the same kind of conclusions about how to treat people and how to work in the world from a you know, completely different perspective. But it, it gives us answers. And you know, just for me, when I look at it this way, I see that there's it, it takes away the a lot of the conflicts as what you're saying, like, for example, um, you know, a face that might not match up with all the rest of the science that we see. This matches up just fine with, you know, all of those aspects of what else is going on in the universe. Yeah. So much like more like a holistic view that is mm -hmm. really acknowledging reality of sometimes we're positing some kind of a hypothesis and it might not play out exactly like that and holding space for the fact that there's, we don't know it all, that there's more, mm -hmm. there's, there's things always going on that we, we're always going to have an imperfect knowledge. Um, one of my, my favorite pastimes and loves is uh, studying the game of poker. And one of the things I like about that, um, I was recently listening to a part of uh, Annie Duke. She's a former retired professional poker player that now gives advice to business people. And she has a new book called Thinking in Bets. And she talks about how critically critically thinking in that way is is very important in all aspects of life in business in in poker is a great teaching tool for that in that it's it is the game of imperfect information as in she she compares it to something like chess where in chess you it, it's a game of basically perfect information because you can always see all the pieces on the board and it's very structured like that it's still a very strategic game there's a ton of skill but there's not really any luck in chess where in poker there's both imperfect information and luck as in you can never you don't you don't know what cards coming you you might not see all the cards in any given hand if, if everybody folds or there's people are bet out of a hand um and you might not you're never going to get to know that information you have to keep making decisions and there's even when you make the best possible decision there's also this element of luck and I just love, that's why I love that game myself personally, because it has been a great teaching tool for myself, for a teaching tool for life in that in, in real life, in real life situations, this applies in other ways, like we're talking about with, with science or health. Like if, if someone comes to like my, my health coaching practice and says, Hey, I want to run some lab tests. I want to uh, get to the root causes uh, of something like, like my back pain, like that's a, uh, that's the the latest um, the latest target audience that Natasha and I are are building a program to help. If someone comes and says, "Hey, you know, I've had back pain like Natasha had for 20 years. Um, I want to to know definitively what the root cause of that is," um, 
it's, it's something that obviously, you know, we love geeking out on that kind of stuff. We love figuring out what are the best tests we can possibly run and get all the data and put it all together in a giant algorithm and figure out all the answers. But just like poker, it's never a game of perfect information. There's no lab test or even set of lab tests. You run every lab test there is, you're not going to get a complete set of data on the human body to get a conclusive answer as to the exact reason, yes, this is like every biochemical reaction that's taken place in your entire lifetime up to this point and every energetic, um, you know, from EMFs to like uh, toxins that have ever entered your body is exactly why this happened. It's impossible, but it doesn't mean that we don't try. It doesn't mean that we don't do our best to, to solve the case and we read patterns. We do the best that we can, obviously, but there has to be an acceptance, I guess, is my point with this is that there has to be an acceptance that there there cannot be a complete knowing as a human being in any of these areas um, as much as we would like like there to be. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a good transition, I guess, to a topic that both of us share a really common interest in, which be the topic of minimalist footwear, barefooting, and the kind of whole the whole topic of that, how that relates to alignment and um, just general health and well-being. And I guess before I hand, pass the mic back over to you, um, just so the listeners know, I have my own um, kind of long journey with barefoot um, and minimalist running in shoes from, coming from a question that was, you know, back in the day of I'm a lifelong soccer player and it was like, why does my foot hurt? And my, my little pinky toe is, seems to be a little bit squished in my soccer cleat and that doesn't feel good. And why is that? And that turned into, you know, now it was almost probably 10 years ago now, um, turned into a whole deep dive into minimalist shoes, red born to run. And like most people got excited, thought I was going to go run 50 miles at a time and then got tendonitis trying to <laughs> do things too quickly and learned kind of the hard way that there might be a lot longer rehabilitation period for something like transitioning to minimal shoes. And I, I've, I've heard you speak about this on Christopher Kelly's podcast on uh, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. If any of you haven't heard those episodes, please check that out on iTunes. It's a good deep dive into a lot of these topics that we might briefly touch on today. Um, but my question today regarding posture in, um, well, barefoot, barefooting and minimal shoes and just basically alignment to the earth in general and how that relates to the specific topic of back pain since this has been my my personal um, deep dive the past month or so has been researching all these different things went to the book got a huge stack or went to the library and got a huge stack of books that were all about how to fix your back pain how to align and I was like geez I've only been researching this for a day and I'm already tired of it there's so much conflicting information so maybe <laughs> you can give us your kind of uh, your story of uh, how your experience with something like back pain and how that translated into your work with massage therapy and kind of what's it all mean? Sure. So I, I, when I went into doing massage therapy, it wasn't with a particular focus on back pain, but of course a huge percentage of my clients came in with that complaint. So I certainly saw a lot of it and, um, I've, I've experienced a little bit from time to time myself, but not any, not chronically the way that many people have. And this is, this is what I think is interesting because as a massage therapist, people come in assuming that you have a solution for their pain, or if you don't, then someone like a physical therapist or, or a chiropractor or a medical doctor has a solution because there is again, this assumption that, 
backs are just supposed to work correctly in the modern world. And this is another one of those situations where if we don't recognize how backs kind of came to function properly at all, we don't really understand why they do or don't work well now or how pain ends up occurring now. And that was actually one of the things that I really began to learn through my career as a massage therapist. And partly why I realized I needed to move on and do other things from there is because I realized that I was not providing a solution for anyone. And it was much more interesting to try to find the cause and try to teach people what they could do that would get closer to the root cause of it. I also read Born to Run in probably 2012, I think. And that definitely was a, a huge key piece for me that added on to several other resources that I had already been familiar with. For example, um, Esther Gokley, who also presents at the Ancestral Health Symposium, she has a book called Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, and it was quite useful in explaining how all the daily movements that we do are part of what shapes our bodies over time and, and creates healthy alignment. And what's really interesting that uh, that came to light for me from Born to Run is that as we were adapted for being able to run on two legs, um, there's one thing that the body's always trying to do, and that's conserve energy. And so the your body is going to use the information from your environment and from the actions that you do and, and the feedback that it gets from navigating and interacting with the environment to both learn how to move in the first place. You know, we don't, we're not born knowing how to walk. We actually have to learn and as well as running and everything else. And so it's going to get that information based on your interactions with the environment that, that help you figure out what, you know, which parts of your body need to contract, not consciously. This is happening on the level of very unconscious aspects uh, of our movement. But we, we have to get that information in the beginning to, 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 for our bodies to build the movement patterns over time. And then, of course, to make adjustments as we go along. There's another, uh, Chris Larang also has a talk about building, a, building your baby from the ground up. And they very much talk about how any kind of device that inhibits uh, an infant or a toddler from being able to interact naturally with the environment is going to impede their development. And shoes are definitely a thing that falls into that category. Because what's really important is your, you know, your feet are uh, almost as sensitive as hands, and they pick up tons of information from, from the way that you're landing with every step on the ground as you're moving. Uh, including how hard your feet are hitting the ground with any given step. And that is a way for the body to determine how efficient you're being with your movement. Because if you, if, going back to conserving energy, the ideal situation that your body would like to have happen is to spend all of your energy going in the direction that you're trying to travel and not wasting any, you know, flopping around side to side, up and down any more than necessary. So for it to be able to assess that, it relies on mechanoreceptors on the soles of the feet 
and they respond especially to small deformations in the bottom of the foot based on roughness in the terrain. So there's a researcher, uh, uh, Stephen Robbins, who noted in particular that a smooth, uh, flat surface wouldn't provide nearly as accurate interpretation of the impact forces that the body was creating compared to a rough surface or like a surface with sand and pebbles and things on it um, or having a, the same effect would be if you have a, a sock or a shoe or anything that's going to reduce the deformations in the sole of your foot based on the terrain because that's going to take away your body's ability to assess how much impact force you're hitting the ground with and that goes back to then your body's ability to know how much muscle engagement it needs in order to actually be efficient. So like if you think in particular about the glute muscle, glute max, which is the coordinator between the femur and the pelvis, so your, your upper leg and uh, your hips, um, and then as well attaches to the sacrum, which is the lower part of the back, that muscle is the only one in the body that has the ability to keep your femur perpendicular to your pelvis when you're standing on one leg, which when you're walking and running, you're repeatedly uh, going back and forth from standing on one leg to the other leg. And that is one of the key muscles as well as a lot of other muscles in the core that needs to be able to engage to maximize your efficiency in your body to move forward and not jostle around and not waste a lot of energy and if your foot is not feeling how hard you're hitting the ground that muscle as well as all the rest of your core muscles are not going to get the signal that they need to engage and keep a good posture and keep efficient movement going because your brain is basically saying oh it seems like all the terrain around here is uh is is just fine actually I should say, it seems like we're moving as efficiently as we possibly could. That's, that's more accurate. We're not sensing that there's any inefficiency in our movement because there's no sense of impact from the ground. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> so this obviously goes right into what we need to support our backs is all the musculature from the, from the hips through the core and <laughs> going back this, you know, long way around. If we, um, the original aspect of our environment that would have created good posture and strong muscles around the hips and core and everything to protect your back and to make it strong and impervious to uh, problems would have been that barefoot running movement way, way back in the day, but we don't do that anymore. And so we're missing support a strong back end. As a result, we have a lot of deficiencies and we end up having to correct it through lots of other means. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, a great, a great and very thorough answer to that, that question, which I really appreciate. There's a lot of things on there that really speak to me in terms of um, really digging into the root cause. I think that's a really important kind of main overall point that I like to get to is um, that when we're looking at a problem, that's why I enjoy, um, happy that all the listeners today get to hear this conversation. Uh, with Stephanie and I, because this is really the things that we really do love to unpack is really why something is versus what, how can we allopathically treat the symptom in terms of something like back pain, I think is a great example where step like the highest level of like superficial level um, would be just what's the symptom 
Um, and how do we get rid of it? Do we get to take a pill? Are we going to um, just somehow alleviate the pain through just like the mechanism, something like a steroid injection um, or some kind of physical type of intervention to the actual structure? Are we going to need it? Are we going to poke it? Are we going to squish it? Are we going to... Um, and sometimes these things are helpful. And that's where I think it gets confusing is that like, if we do something and it feels better, then it must be the right thing, right? But there's a big difference between short-term solutions that might be good in say, you know, days or even weeks versus months and years and decades when problems linger into that level. There's a time and a place for allopathic therapy. And there, there can even be a time and a place for maintenance of some of these types of things, which is personally how I like to use things like a massage or physical therapy or specific rehabilitative exercises. I've gone through a variety of those over my journey with, um, you know, back pain has definitely been a part of it off and on. It wasn't really the highlight, but uh, it definitely played into, especially as I had my son and I was carrying around a lot more as I became more inactive from going from an active job working in the auto tech industry to doing a lot more sitting like this and recording things and videos. Um, it's definitely been something that I've had to focus on and specifically like glute engagement. I've, I've realized through my own trial and error, um, I know there's some, not, I won't say it a lot, but there's some functional practitioners out there like biomechanists, like people like Katie Bowman that speak about these sort of things and, and people that do it in practice that look at biomechanics on an individual level and say, how does something like an injury relate to these muscle activations? How do you, how do specific variables probably, I, I totally agree. The biggest variable mismatch in our current environment is just the shoes watching my my own son like um or watching my son's friends i should say with their big clunky shoes and my my thankfully my my ex-wife and i uh, my son's mom are very much in alignment on having him have very minimal shoes but watching his running form or his movement versus a lot of other kids in clunky shoes it was like very apparent how that 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 start of the mismatch of blocking information and then how that truly translates to muscle movement. And the injury I was speaking about was I picked up a soccer injury. I don't know how long it was now, probably almost, you know, a decade ago or something. So like everything was a decade ago, but it was a big, a severe injury to one of my, my big toe joints. I think it was my, I think it was my right one. I can't remember now. It's good. It's been healed enough. I don't remember it. Um, but it really impacted my gait for a long time. I had a pretty severe limp and that caused my glutes and my hip muscles to be very imbalanced and the glute wasn't firing because I was really favoring one side. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but as the years went on, I was like, wait a minute, this, as I analyzed my own walking gait and, you know, as I was doing things like relearning to walk in minimal shoes and barefoot a lot, I was noticing like, wait a minute, my left glute doesn't really seem to be firing here. And why is that? And now it's like, I almost have to do these practices still to this day when I'm walking to actively think about my posture like okay i need my my need my chest up i need my head up i need my shoulders back and relaxed i need my you know lower limbs relaxed i need to be um, properly pronating and towing off and i need to be making sure that one of those tips like you spoke of i've heard katie bowman say before is to make sure you have a strong glute contraction on every step and when i focus on that really attentively my my kind of lingering chronic back um pain tends to go away, which is interesting. You know, I want to throw a, another little curveball in with this particular topic because I've also d done a ton to try and manipulate my biomechanics and gait. And curiously, one of the techniques that I found um, 
strikingly effective actually came from an orthodontist uh, who also presents at Ancestral Health Symposium named Mike Mew. Have you uh, seen him present? Uh, I have not. So he talks about tongue posture and this ties back into all sorts of other things like the uh, amount of chewing that we do as we're young and the whether or not we actually uh, breastfeed and the amount of uh, jaw action and, and sucking effort that we have to put in, how our, how our faces develop and then as a result, how, our, how well our airways function um, and whether or not there is effectively space for our tongue in our mouths and um, he talks about using tongue posture uh, to help it, orthodontically speaking um, but when I attempted his method which is uh, one of the and he explains it a lot more on his own uh, sites and videos um, but engaging the rear third of the tongue to press up against the roof of the mouth of all the things that I've ever tried to do to modify posture as I was walking or running, that one tiny little cue to me has seemed to have a, a more profound effect in immediately kind of shifting uh, several different things in terms of uh, placement of the head, neck and shoulders. And that's another resource that I would suggest taking a look into uh, Mike Mew's work and things about tongue posture and how this can also connect in. <laughs> and that's a very, very interesting point. I haven't heard about that. So what is the kind of the short story? I'm sure people listening would be curious about this. Like how, how do you get, you're saying the, which third of the tongue is it the front, the back you're saying? Uh, the, the, yeah, the back third of the tongue. Okay. Um, so it's, it's just about uh, as it, it kind of starts out with, we, Either we don't uh, we don't do enough sucking or enough early on chewing of of hard things, and our facial structure becomes a little bit smaller. And then as a result, in order to be able to breathe properly, our tongue kind of recedes a little bit and and relaxes instead of staying pushing up against the palate. So it's just kind of about pushing the the rear third of the tongue up against the roof of the mouth is the simplest way I can say it. Um, and you have to go look at his, uh, I believe he has quite a few videos on YouTube um, for more detail on it. But just a, another little postural hack to, uh, to kind of work with. Cool. How do, you, how do you spell his name again? Mike Mew, you said? Mew, M-E-W. M-E-W. Right. Cool. Well, I will look into that for sure. That sounds very intriguing. Um, yeah, so to kind of wrap up this this topic with, uh, you know, back pain alignment, all this sort of things that, yeah, just it really is a, I, I like getting at the root, the root cause of these things in terms of like, what are the biggest needle movers of things that we can do? Because like you're saying, if, if we're working on a more um, kind of like structural level, Natasha and I just uh, shot a new online training uh, specifically about back pain and inflammation where we we're talking a lot about uh, the differences between structural modalities like chiropractic or massage or PT that are working on like literally the physical structure. And like I said, there's definitely a time and a place for those things and they can be a piece of the overall picture, but the getting a handle on that root cause is, is really going to be 
I would I would argue really the only kind of long-term solution that's any sort of efficient versus like it's like you got to stop pouring gasoline on the fire if you want to put it out you need some water too but if you're you're making if the load into the system like you're saying if the shoes the alignment to the ground that information that the body needs to even if you're going to you know say rehabilitate muscles which is definitely a good idea with if that information is missing um not going to, the body's not going to be able to efficiently without a whole bunch of manual work and maintain the maintenance on that manual work to get any, gain any sort of ground, I would think over to create proper, proper alignment, create a proper integration on a holistic level, really of all the muscles in the body versus trying to rehab one muscle versus the other. It's still good. I think to focus on kind of the, the big players, like something like the glutes, but really it's, it is a holistic endeavor trying to get the body to move. Uh, functionally and then you know of course in the short term doing things like like we all love to do really focusing on our recovery things like sleep and uh, restorative like targeted nutrients and supplements to tone down inflammation and um, food a dense diet that's really nutritious eating all the colors of the rainbow all these things are going to have a ton of effects um, things like gut health and the whole holistic picture getting bringing balance to the body is what's going to allow I really believe that's what helped uh, help Natasha um, overcome her back pain that she had for 22 years was this really big influx of a lot of lifestyle interventions, um, all those sort of things. And, and she did um, during that time that she healed uh, her back pain did transition more to um, more minimalist style shoes and more barefooting along, along with that. And I, I really do believe that was a big part of removing those um, dis dysfunctional movement patterns and removing that inefficient load um, on the different structures, including the spine, and then combining that at the same time with a bunch of like really healing, rejuvenating uh, things was really the big piece in that puzzle. So appreciate you, Stephanie, for uh, going over some of the biomechanics of that because I, I feel like that would be really useful information for a lot of people out there. Yeah. 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 It's amazing how many things can uh, tie into things like back pain, and for sure, the you know, the, the only thing that keeps us from being a pile of bones on the floor is all the muscles contracting around us. It's like, you know, that one of the tendencies is to occur because gravity is just pushing us down all the time. But it really is about the muscular engagement around everything. That's actually what holds the bones in the right spatial relationships and creates room for cartilage and spinal discs to live in there and so it's it's hugely about lifestyle and everything from whether we get that advantage in the beginning of being able to uh you know to access our feet or or going all the way back to that question of did we breastfeed and like did the, the ramifications of that um to what we can do to kind of supplement for any deficiencies that we had uh, from our upbringing and, and knowing, you know, where we need to apply those, whether it's strengthening in the glutes or actually going back to running barefoot or, you know, any, any other interventions that would try to counteract what we might've missed out on. Awesome. Well, speaking of that, um, with a nice segue to restoring parts of the body, one of my personal questions after, um, hearing some of your other, your other work mm -hmm. on podcasts and talks was on the subject of, circumcision and specifically the area of foreskin restoration because um, I think 
probably you and I are very much in alignment on, and hopefully with a lot of people listening today, I'm very much in alignment that circumcision is is not something, it's definitely not paleo, <laughs> as your, uh, your talks have, have spoken about. It's not evolutionarily normal in, in any way. It may be a very common thing that we, <laughs> we do, um, but it's definitely not normal <laughs> um, to cut off the foreskin uh-huh. of the penis. So um, this, this has been uh, a personal, personal I got journey. in a lot of trouble about talking about this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely like, as you know, we're warming up the listeners here with our, our relatively logistical discussions. We'll dive into the more taboo topics as we keep going, I'm sure. Um, but this is a good segue. <laughs> so um, with, uh, with foreskin restoration specifically, um, like I, I'm one of the many millions of circumcised men, um, you know, which happened with, without my consent, obviously, as a, a couple days old infant. Uh, and I didn't really think much about it until, you know, the, getting into the ancestral world and, and hearing talks like yours about the, the real missing function of this very critical piece of anatomy. So once, once I was on board with that, it's like, you know, okay, great. My son's not getting circumcised. Like, so we've, we've cleared off one, <laughs> checked one box off of, not perpetuating the problem in my specific situation, but you know, for myself, it's like, okay, what can I do to start reversing the process? And I've, I was mentioning to you that I've been wearing um, a device called the manhood. It's actually, I think the website is manhoodcanada.com or something their, their site where they, they have basically a little cloth cover that goes over the glands of the penis to help with the keratinization um, and to bring back, help the tissue of the glands and, I mean, just anecdotally, sometimes I try to, you know, apply some kinds of like, you know, lotions or things to try to kind of replicate the mucosal environment that would have been naturally there with the foreskin. It's a poor substitute, obviously, for a fully functioning uh, organ, but it's kind of the best that I've come up with so far. But on my, the, my question for you today would be um, to kind of unpack a little bit more in terms of if, if man already is circumcised and their work, they want to say, hey, I want to kind of restore as much function as I can get what what might be my options be for uh, restoration of that? Uh, sure, yeah. And I agree with you that to me, this was actually a natural extension of thinking about how we can uh, treat our bodies with more respect and understand that the that what we developed is actually well-formed and highly functional and you know, designed again towards conservation of energy. There's nothing, there's, there's, there's very little that's wasted and certainly not with the, of, of all things, the organs of reproduction, you know, the, the evolutionary incentive to maximize how well and how efficiently and effectively those work. It's, it's very, very high pressure on that area of the body. So we, we necessarily should just assume that it's designed in a way that has a lot of purpose to it, or at least uh, if we don't want to call it purpose, um, rather it was honed by uh, the the chisel of evolution to a very precise function. And it's definitely, it's cool that they have, uh, you know, something, um, I don't know if you call it a device or a, a, um, I haven't actually seen this particular item in person, the, the manhood, yeah, it's just basically um, it like, like it a piece of cloth that it kind of mm-hmm. various textures. They have some that are kind of like designed to be a little more grippy. I don't know about the 
should email the founder about the you know possible like I don't know mm. the colorings and dyes they use and it might not be the most uh, good for oh. the detoxification system <laughs> but um, you know everything's a balance right so it, it basically like a piece sure. of cloth hood that as the name implies manhood where it has a little velcro snap yeah. and um, you know just wear it like a like you would a glove or a sock or something and, um, yep yeah so so that's going to address uh, one, maybe a couple of the functions that foreskin has. And um, I actually go into quite a lot of detail of the functions of foreskin in one of my talks that you can find on YouTube, which is called Not So Vestigial, The Anatomy and Functions of Male Foreskin. And so it's definitely going to cover some of the protection aspect, as you mentioned, to maybe to, to allow some... Uh, lessening of the keratinization of the glands and a little bit more, you know, restoring towards the mucosal uh, state of the tissue there. So ideally you would be seeing some, uh, some improvement in sensitivity there and a little bit of aid in lubrication. Um, definitely protection and lubrication are two of the top functions of foreskin. And I think that's, uh, the lubrication part is one that people really are not very aware of. The kind of assumption is that it's the female partner who would be providing the majority of the lubrication. And it's actually the, the job is quite much more split up between the parties. When you have a fully functioning foreskin, it's, it produces its own lubrication and it's, uh, you know, part of, as well as, um, the, the aspect that you wouldn't get with the manhood would be the ability of the skin to retract and allow the intromission function without drawing out fluid. So uh, there are methods that people have for foreskin restoration in terms of generating more tissue, which would have the that second effect that I mentioned, like as the, as the, penis is drawing out of the vagina, the skin can roll and stay so where the more epithelial tissue is kind of on the outside of a woman's body and the mucosal uh, portion of the penis is inside and kind of keeping the lubrication inside. Um, and that can be done by uh, stretching in the same way that skin on any part of the body can be stretched. Um, I'm sure people have seen examples where when a, a, screen, a skin graft is required, some, you know, you could have like a balloon put under your skin to create a bunch more skin, or obviously as we gain weight, we have to create more skin to accommodate it. So it's quite a similar principle that through a variety of devices, you can put tension on uh, the skin that's currently on the penis and give it some pressure to stimulate it to create more tissue. Uh, what it won't recreate is the specific type of nerve endings that are found in the foreskin. The, 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 um, what's called the, the distal tip, the farthest out uh, when, when the penis is flaccid. The, the very end is something called the ridged band, which is just, uh, there's sort of just extra little ridges in the tissue right there. And they have nerve endings in them called Meisner's corpuscles, which are fine touch sensors. And those actually balance out the sensation between, between those fine touch, fine touch receptors, which are actually very similar to the fingertips. 
compared to the receptors that are in the glands, which are called free nerve endings, and those register almost more of a sense of irritation or pain, but it kind of comes across as intensity. And if you have both of those types of sensations, they uh, they kind of balance out the kind of the pleasure plus intensity factor. Those that's there's no way to restore those. Um, they're just gone, but you can you can get back some of the tissue, uh, and just in terms of what's going to be epithelial tissue at that point, and that would allow some improvement in the mechanical action. Um, you would get basically the effect of the manhood in terms of the covering aspect. You would also get back some of the ability for the foreskin thing for it to roll back and forth. And that actually has a lot of effects. Uh, it's been studied that it takes 10 times as much physical force for penetration with, uh, with a circumcised penis compared to uh, an uncircumcised uh, penis where it's um, starting out from a point that it's not retracted. So that potentially could have a lot of effect uh, to, to work on restoration with, um, in terms of stretching the skin. Cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's very helpful. And, oh, yeah. no, did you have another thought on that? Um, no, that's good for now. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to jump in and say that. Yeah. I, very much appreciate that that very um, very specific um, explanation of that in in the the types of nerve endings and cells and that are in different types of of tissue on the foreskin and versus the glands and to me just anecdotally as one man but I imagine many men are in the same boat um, I, I remember listening uh, on your other podcast with Chris Kelly talking about the same subject where it was talking about um, you know, the different effects of, of all the different, different functions of, I mean, really the penis in general, but the foreskin as it relates to the glands and all these sort of things. And I was thinking through, you know, my own experience, I've heard other podcasts, like I think Daniel Vitalis uh, uh, has a lot of podcasts on this um, circumcision. It's really been like an emotional journey for me as well. It's like a grieving process. It really, you know, like with the concept of like basically being genetic, uh, genitally mutilated and it's it's a really big emotional subject but it also i think learning more about the the science behind um how the structures and tissues work in the body it it has brought um a sense of efficiency if you will to the grieving processes and like it's like okay now i know exactly what you know what can i recreate what can i not recreate and that's why i was curious to, to ask you um thanks for going through that um and for me, it also, I think, helps to kind of release some of the, the pressure that I put on myself as a circumcised man with things regarding uh, things like orgasm control and sensation where, you know, as over my life as, you know, since hitting puberty, it, it has been an interesting journey of different times of my life, depending on how I was doing physically or emotionally. Um, my orgasm control honestly has varied pretty widely from being very sensitive to lack of sensitivity and being without the knowledge of like why that might be, or even knowing that circumcision was even a thing that could affect all these things. It's the only, it's kind of like uh, religion in the absence of science, like we were speaking to earlier, without the the scientific understanding of it, the, the only explanation is to kind of invent a story, which usually for most of us, and for me, 
you know, in earlier versions of myself was more like, well, there must be something wrong with me or I, I don't know how to do this. And it's, it's, it's very similar to like, again, like the back pain thing of like, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to be healthy, but my back still hurts. Why is that? And it can be kind of maddening. So I think with this topic of circumcision, it's really important to, and I feel very passionately about spreading this information to other men to be like, Hey, like, this is what's going on. Like there, there's this, there's a slide in, in learning a lot about um, giving, you know, presentations to educ and education lately. And there's, there's one slide in there that is kind of ubiquitous to all these that just says, it's not your fault. Like, <laughs> it's just like, it's, mm -hmm. it's not your fault personally for any of us men that are circumcised that it's like, oh, hey, it might be a little bit more work to figure out how to have a healthy relationship really with your own, your own sexuality or your own penis because it's been significantly mm -hmm. altered from its initial state of function. So that's okay. That's actually mm -hmm. normal to experience, uh, you know, various struggles and, and go through this process of, of healing because it just is, it is what it is. We can talk about the, you know, like, like yeah. you, you talked about in other podcasts, like the social political aspects of it, which I think we're in total alignment that it really should not be a thing anymore, but at the end of the day, everyone that's already experienced it has this journey, like I'm speaking about for myself, that it's like, what are we going to do now? Because we can't go back in time. So mm -hmm. um, I've also yep. thought about some things about like, I've seen some of those things, I haven't researched very in depth, but things like, uh, like some of those like uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma injection, I think they do some of those um, in the penis as well. But there's a variety of technologies, probably like, you know, stem cells, different things that are coming out on the market. I'm not super well versed on, on all of those yet. So I won't speak too in depth to any of those, but I think it's interesting as time goes on and science evolves and functional medicine evolves that there's always uh, seems like a new and exciting way to try to at least optimize the function of the tissue we have available to us, like in the glands mm -hmm. um, that every circumcised male still has a gland. So we can work on, on getting the health of that and the well. nerves they're healthy, but most of them. Most every, of them. Every now and Sorry. again, yeah. there's one of those medical accidents that people don't want to admit happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I should say not to not to minimize that for anyone that has experienced that because I, I wish that upon my greatest enemy. I, so. I I bring it up as a, a personal pet peeve because it's uh, when people talk about the risks of circumcision, um, it's it's downplayed that. Uh, that that the risks uh, are significant, but um, there are a, a completely unnecessary number of actually tragic case stories that uh, that do result from what is effectively not in any way a therapeutic uh, procedure, and uh, which to me just are a hundred percent unjustified to take those risks. Uh, it usually, I mean, death is usually listed as hemorrhage, not death from circumcision, um, you know, or, or amputations or things like that. So that's just a <laughs> little pet peeve of mine that people treat it as if it, you know, doesn't really have any detrimental effect, let alone what you and I are discussing about the, um, what we understand as the costs. Um, but it, it can actually be a lot more serious than that. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to add, I wanted to add one more thing that mm -hmm. a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of as well as something that you can potentially do about it. Um, it's not often considered the effect that circumcision could have on the female partner, but actually uh, both because of 
um, if some of the uh, mechanical changes that would uh, increase levels of friction in a less than ideal way and um, reduce the amount of lubrication that's available. Uh, those are some of them, but there's also an aspect that even when it comes down to the, the movement, you know, if you have, if you have the foreskin intact, when it does retract, it, the, that ridged band that I mentioned that's on the tip ends up about halfway down the shaft, which means the most, the most fine touch sensitive part then goes to basically the middle of the shaft at that point. And it's my personal suspicion that that changes the, the way that the, the male partner experiences the sensation and thus how he's likely to move because what I've noticed with many partners in, in my life is that the, somehow the default assumption seems to be that the thing that gives women the most pleasure is focused around thrusting. And, you know, if you're missing the ridged band and your, your primary area of sensation is around the glands, that might also be the most stimulating uh, pleasurably for the male partner to, to have that. So, for example, a full-length thrust that pulls the glands in or out of the vaginal opening is going to create a lot of stimulation there. But what I think happens on the women's uh, experience is that that's not that's often not the most pleasurable thing that uh, many women find a lot more pleasure from. Actually, a great deal more contact, much more grinding motions. And I think that might be a, a small detail that if men who are circumcised and maybe think about where it is that you're feeling sensation and, and uh, how that might be different than the sort of natural state of the penis. Um, you could consciously adjust your movements uh, with an eye toward the idea that maybe more body contact and less thrusting could be something that your female partner might enjoy. So I think that would be uh, another little detail to to look at as far as not just your personal experience, but also your partners and how and what effect that might have and what you could do to adjust for it. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. And that's, that's a great um, pairing with, with all that information we're talking about, about re restoring the physical tissues of the circumcised penis and how that might, you know, along, alongside that journey for the man to also think about as their own nerves and skin, hopefully are, rehabilitating how that would they might be able to carry those uh carry that stuff through into the way that they move with their their female partners and um have it all make nice <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah and that's probably a good uh transition point as any into our our next topic of the day um i did want to get into uh tribal living as some of you might know stephanie welch uh gave a talk at Ancestral Health Symposium in 2019, a few months ago. Um, the title of the talk was called Tribal Living, How Might an Ancestrally Inspired Gender Segregated Housing Model Outperform the Nuclear Family as the Basic Domestic Unit of Society? And this is something that uh, Stephanie and I and some of our other close friends had some pretty awesome talks with uh, at the after the Paleo FX conference this year as well. Um, a lot of cool and interesting synergy there in terms of really thinking outside the box about how to restructure society on a pretty grand level, actually, in terms of um, 
moving from a moving from households that are monogamous couples for the most part are just single adults in in some cases to uh, gender segregated larger groups of people where there's men and women in separate separate houses and there's a lot more freedom with things like romantic relationships given that those models might provide a lot more stability with things like finances, childcare, social support, all the things really that get kind of tacked on to the bill with uh, the romantic relationship. Um, so Stephanie, for those of the people that haven't seen the talk, um, I'm sure you can do this uh, more justice than, than me with my synopsis here. So let's maybe give everyone like the, the, the synopsis on that. And then we can dive into uh, the specific part about the romantic relationships, which which is the highest topic, level of interest for me. <laughs> yeah, um, let me give a couple of notes before we go all the way into it, which uh, is this is this is one of the most current topics that I'm working on and I'm getting more and more insights uh, as we go. So mm -hmm. this even this theory is still currently evolving for me. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into like lots of touching into lots of cool new aspects of this. Um, one of the things that this hinges on before we go all the way into tribal living is another evolutionary aspect of what is really the fundamental difference between men and women. And I alluded a bit to this in the beginning about the effects that it has on our species of the way that we evolved uh, with our extended childhood dependency and all that. And let me see if I can give you a good little summary of that here. Um, you know, as, okay, so according to Daniel Lieberman in the story of the human body, it takes a whopping 12 million calories to grow a human into an 18 year old adult. And then notably after that, for the first, um, not, not after that, uh, even at the beginning of that, for the first nine months of gestation and then the subsequent period of nursing and weaning, the mother is the sole source of nutrition for an infant, which means that this, this upfront sunk cost in just pure caloric terms um, then also makes it imperative for her to continue, continue to invest in that offspring for the remainder of the, the time until it's no longer uh, dependent. So women for every single offspring that we have have to invest a minimum of two to three years of our lives for each reproductive opportunity. And all of that would go to waste if we weren't able to continue providing for them for uh, the rest of their childhood and adolescence. So as a result, women were strongly evolutionary incentivized toward tribal unity to generate a robust system of caretakers and maximize the number of people invested in the well-being of every child, which is a very socialist kind of mindset. Um, whereas men, on the other hand, were evolutionarily incentivized towards minimizing expenditures of energy, again, conserving energy like in every other way, but specifically restricting any resources that they did contribute to benefit only their direct offspring, um, first because they have the ability to reproduce much faster than women, with a very minimal investment compared to multiple years um, and the rate limited only by their access to fertile females as well as that they can count on those females to 
in their commitment to feeding any subsequent children with or without male help. So the male perspective on this ends up being very capitalist. And this fundamental difference between men and, and women is, uh, is, I think, very key to understanding what happens in society and why, for example, patriarchal culture is very different from matriarchal culture because we're motivated by different things. So when it comes to uh, tribal living, um, I mentioned earlier that agriculture made a big change in things. And it's because this, this evolutionary tribal structure that we created, which is largely based around women's needs, um, it allowed women to kind of control the game in a couple of different ways. First, in order to get men to continue to invest in the, the community and the offspring um, outside of just the fertilization. Uh, this, I believe this is actually why we expanded our use of sexuality beyond just fertilization was essentially to create, create a way of rewarding men for continued investment of time and resources, including even when fertilization was not a possibility. So, you know, we, we became interested in sex continuously, regardless of whether we were fertile. Uh, we kind of, um, uh, well, in addition, not only was it about um, creating those rewards, but also we made it very difficult for men to know which children were actually theirs. And um, that again, because we were receptive regardless of whether we were um, fertile, but just essentially all the time, we, we obscured signs of of estrus, um, which is the signs when we're actually fertile. And we kind of created all these other signs that we might be fertile, but you can't really tell. Uh, a detail that I find very amusing is we're the only mammal that keeps their mammary glands engorged when we're not nursing. So in other words, having breasts all the time is, uh, is actually a, a sign of potential fertility, but you can't tell for sure because it doesn't change regardless of whether we are or are not fertile. Um, I mean, after adolescence and all. Um, so the result of this is men were not able to restrict their resources to their only their own offspring. They, the, the, they were drawn in more to support women and all the children that could potentially be theirs because women were not acting monogamously. Um, so this was a completely different way of running society than what we have now in the nuclear family, which came along uh, through agriculture. Because agriculture allowed one industrious man to single-handedly provide enough food for a woman and all her children. And that, uh, in contrast to the hunter-gatherer model, that was the first time that men had a justification to require sexual monogamy from women so that he would know that all the children he was feeding were actually his. Um, that right there, I believe, is what is the power dynamic shift that happened um, that led to a more patriarchal culture is that ability for instead of women controlling the distribution of resources, now once once men knew which children were theirs, now men could control the distribution of resources. Yeah, that's, and, that's really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a big part of what led to the structures that we have now and why the nuclear family is the basis because 
each man operating in his capitalist way is interested in maximizing his resources but restricting them to his offspring and because women are in a position and i'll say too that this psychology uh is so ingrained in us from all of those hundreds of thousands of years and back um that it doesn't it doesn't just apply if we are in relationships or are actively having children or not this is this is part of kind of our whole way of operating in the world so um, it goes far beyond that um, but in any case if we let's go with the case if we do have children um, again we're on the hook in a big way as women thinking back about those 12 million calories that we've basically now signed up to ensure gets delivered because otherwise it would be a gigantic waste of time and energy for us reproductively, evolutionarily speaking. Um, which then leads to why I suggested that there could be a different model of how we could do the domestic structures of society instead of only relying on the nuclear model. So the concept here is again, that women are highly incentivized to cooperate with one another to ensure the well-being and survival and thriving of our offspring because we only get a few chances in a lifetime and we can't speed up our own rates by slowing other women down so we might as well work together to uh, to create a robust system of caretakers um, again this psychology is there even if we aren't actually the ones having children um, so that's part of the idea between behind the gender segregated household is that women are already incentivized to cooperate with one another and the aspect of control that um, comes from men being the ones to distribute resources is sort of is removed a little bit uh, by that aspect um, but it also does a, a surprising number of other things that uh, I think people may not um, have, people have a hard time uh, getting on with this one. And this, you, this is where you uh, probably have um, good perspectives to bring up here. Um, even things like the effect on romantic relationships, because the assumption is with this whole nuclear family model that you find the romantic relationship you want, and then you build your domestic structure around that. But that actually, is really taxing on romantic relationships. You know, we, um, even when we think about the advice that couples are given when they've been together for a long time and maybe things are kind of not as hot as they were in the beginning, uh, a lot of the encouragement is to do things to make it more like back when you were dating, like as in before you actually lived together. Because um, once you've promised that what, once you've, one, physically moved in together where now it's going to cost a lot for you to change the situation, and two, promised never to leave each other, um, which kind of sets the stage for complacency because what do you have to do to work to impress the other person if you've promised never to leave each other? Um, and then um, especially when it comes for women, um, you know, people, people sometimes say uh, there's a phrase like, happy wife, happy wife, happy life. 
Like when women are happy, things are actually pretty good for everybody. But uh, what happens to a lot of uh, um, in, in relationships when there is like a nuclear family model, um, for women especially, we make lots and lots of compromises that may initially start out very small, but may kind of build up and fester over time because the cost of actually standing our ground and trying to do something about it and then having to move out or get divorced or like battle for child support or all those kind of things is, is so high that we, we don't, you know, kind of stay as true to ourselves as we could. And if we had a domestic environment that was stable, that was totally independent of our sexual choices or relationships, then, you know, we would be in a much better position to actually negotiate those relationships in a way that we, to, to keep everything at a healthy level and not let those, um, not let those issues build up like that. And uh, I mean, so there are a bunch of other factors too that I spoke about in that talk uh, regarding what, uh, what we want a home to provide and how well the nuclear family model versus a potential tribal model were covering it. But, um, but I know you have more specific questions too. So I want to go back to those. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yes. And for anyone that hasn't seen the talk again, uh, if you search for Stephanie Welsh, uh, tribal living, uh, AHS 19 on YouTube, you can find that, uh, find that talk and check out the whole thing. Um, but yes, my, uh, well, where should they start with this? Yeah. So romantic relationships in terms of that, like personally in my own life journey, I have felt, and it's been an interesting parallel with learning about evolutionary psychology in different ways over the last 20 years, um, during which that time at the start of that process was where I met my now ex-wife and we had a, a long monogamous relationship for the most part um, before opening up into a more open relationship near the end. But that initial first like decade of monogamy, um, it was really trying to play by the the common script in really all the ways. It was I, I got out of academics and psychology and and got a real job in automotive and I you know did all the things you're supposed to do like I you know watched TV and paid taxes and drank beer like a good American and uh, you know did all those all those things and it was just like. I just had this sinking feeling that it just wasn't, it was missing a bunch of things here that something was off. Like just like with the health symptom or something, I had this suspicion that like, you know, this is the results I'm getting from this lifestyle are not really what it's being sold to me as. And I wonder what is going on with that. So that's where I started digging and reading more into evolutionary psychology. Um, you know, read things like Chris Ryan's sex at dawn, which probably a lot of uh, listeners might be familiar with. If you're not definitely go check that book out. Um, as the kind of treatise on human sexuality and uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, breaking the, the standard narrative of humans as monogamous uh, entities to be, you know, they're more like promiscuous uh, primates like bonobos that use, like uh, Stephanie was saying, uh, sexuality as more of a social structure for a variety of reasons um, related to, related to things like paternity and, uh, balance within within the tribes and things like that and because i i was feeling that really deeply intuitive for myself um i was i was i started exploring that and long story short that 
that pressure of wanting to change myself as an individual and start to align with different groups of people or different thoughts and things like this, um, that pressure started to create a dissonance in my romantic relationship as well because there was so much in my marriage. Like most people, if you're married, you have a house, you know, was thinking about having kids at that point and then had, had my son seven years ago. And it really was pretty evident that it was like, wow, all these things are really colliding in a really interesting way. And I love that um, you bring this up, Stephanie, about the concept of commonly thought of as patriarchy, which I think both of us agree that the traditional uh, dichotomous uh, feminist uh, patriarchal view is really doing a disservice to the, the, the bigger picture here. And it really is not, it's really doing not only not helping, but actually really hurting the conversation in terms of bridging the gap and healing all these things and creating better models, just getting entrenched in these kind of um, gender politics uh, battles. I, I very much identify with the the narrative that you're telling, which is that there's a lot of logic and reason behind these things on both sides that for men and women, we've been adapting as uh, each gender to the evolutionary selection pressures that we were put under in very intelligent ways. It's and none of them are on anyone's part have been, you know, ill-intentioned in any way. They've been just really um, a very practical survival aspect. Like you said, 12 million calories, we got to figure out how to get that job done. And all of these societal structures have been influencing that. And it was kind of like that temptation of agriculture to have this quote unquote easy life um, that has really, I think, it's like that apple, you know, an Adam and Eve, like uh, eating the apple. And it's the original sin was to try to take the easy road. And we've really kind of hitched ourselves to the wrong wagon, in, in my opinion. Um, and I think you might agree that we're headed, we've headed down this road as, as a species now where we've set up our societal structures in ways like you explained so eloquently in your talk that are just really not efficient. They're really not serving our goals. And me personally, in, in my journey, I've noticed that like first in my marriage. And it, that's why eventually it, it led me to, you know, to a divorce because it was just like, I need to grow in these specific ways. But my, if I, if I stop the romantic relationship or sexual relationship with someone, then all the, the rest of my <laughs> life unravels. And that happens like for both men and women um, in different ways. And I, I like that you point out, Stephanie, that it's, um, there are a lot of these pressures in both directions. It's not just like, I, as a man, it's been very frustrating to me over the years that this kind of one-sided view of patriarchy as in like, it's all the men and they're evil and out to get everybody. And it's really like, we're really not, as I can speak for myself as a man, or really this is not our agenda. We're trying to meet our own needs and survive. And we want to do the things that are the right things. Like, and society tells us, hey, you need to do this. And if anything, um, a lot of the times when, I, when I've heard, you know, you're, your story and uh, some of our, my other close female friends tell their stories, I resonate a ton with these very same things of feeling disempowered, of feeling like I don't have a lot of options, of feeling like I've compromised a lot in different areas of my life because of all my eggs are in one basket, basically, with... Yes, and my specific questions that I had and my specific interest in this area were around like my own journey with romantic relationships over the years, um, over the last couple decades, going through a marriage, a divorce, and then a long-term relationship now, which has, has been both uh, open and closed, monogamous and non-monogamous in different uh, situations. And 
I've really felt the weight of that over that journey with, um, in regards to like what you're talking about with patriarchy versus, uh, you know, the, the traditional view of patriarchy where it's like, you know, men somehow were trying to control women or, or this, what I, I really feel is like not really helping this narrative um, and healing those, the two sides of the fence there. Um, I felt that weight myself along the way with the journey of doing what I thought I was supposed to do. It went from, you know, having a marriage that was monogamous and doing things like I thought I was supposed to do it. I was, I was had a regular job in, in automotive. I worked during the day and came home at night, drank beer and, you know, just was living the dream. Like I was supposed to live it. It didn't really feel right to me. I knew there was some more, there had to be something else underneath the hood. There had to be deeper meaning because I didn't feel like I was getting the results for the effort that I was putting into this, this life that I had. And as I looked deeper into it and started reading books, uh, like sex at dawn from Chris Ryan, um, I realized that I did want to start changing who I was as a person. I did want to start adjusting the way that I, I had my romantic relationships and the ways that I uh, really was just showing up as a person. Um, but as a consequence, I quickly figured out, like a lot of people do, that there's this extremely high cost of switching out your romantic relationship, but not disturbing every other piece of your life. And when I got divorced, it was like, okay, well, we're at this place where it's time we need to do that. Like I needed to do that in my life and go through that journey. And I was like, okay, well now, now I'm just going to find a different partner and this is going to be solved. And it's like, I, I soon realized uh, a couple years into my, my current relationship of five years that uh, it's like the model is not any different. <laughs> it's uh, there's, there's things that shift obviously in each, each long-term relationship in a relatively monogamous, but, even monogamous or not really just cohabiting with someone in this nuclear family unit. It has these same pressures regardless of much of the other factors of health or sexuality and different things that can be in that relationship. Just the fact that all your eggs are in one basket is really this. Um, it's so much pressure on the situation. It's so much, um, so much is riding on that one that one relationship and it becomes very expensive in all the ways emotionally financially to to leave and i just i really i really have a lot of respect for your work stephanie and bringing this idea to people that there might be a better way a better way to do relationships a better way to set up our uh, societal structures that really serve all of us not just men or not just women but all humans and children and everybody in a much more efficient way and i really i really think that's the big word that comes to mind for me is this efficiency to get away from these uh dysfunctional power dynamics in both directions to get away from people feeling that they don't have agency to make the changes in their life as we all grow and evolve over you know our reproductive lifetimes or just our whole lifetimes just um we're going to be evolving and we're going to almost need not even just want to change our romantic relationships from time to time or at least the weighting of them and the amount of time we spend with different people and that's a healthy thing but our our model that we have really doesn't allow for flexibility in those things without really just turning over the whole apple cart and dumping everything out on the floor uh, which just isn't efficient for really anything if we want to if we want to get better as a, as a species of a lot of things things like big questions like climate change or 
you know, big political movements or injustice in the world and feeding the hungry and all these different things that we want to do. If we're wasting a bunch of energy just on our baseline, getting up in the morning and, and getting ourselves clothed and fed. And that, if we can't even figure that out, I don't know how we're going to solve these bigger problems. So appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely a matter of, uh, things are, things are very, very inefficient. Um, and the way things currently are. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So yeah, I think we're getting, we're getting towards the end of our time here, uh, today for a lot of time. So, uh, there's definitely some more ideas that we want to probably unpack in another episode. I know we've had some pretty good, uh, deep conversations about, uh, masculine and feminine archetypes and how that relates to a lot of things we've spoken about today in terms of really self-efficacy or self-actualization, I should say, um, and really developing into the fullest versions of ourselves and some ideas around that can relate to that in, in society. Uh, so maybe, I don't know if you want to give us kind of a sneak peek on some of the things you're working on that you might be able to talk about in our next episode. Yeah, so I'm actually uh, – intrigued what you were just saying a moment ago too about the efficiency and how we can address bigger world problems because of course that's that's certainly been an interest of mine when I think about human potential obviously taking everything that we've created up to now you know I believe that we can do so much more as long as we don't uh, you know send it all down the drain by messing everything up mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah, I would love to talk next time about the archetypes. Um, there's, uh, you've, I think, written before about uh, looking at the king, warrior, magician, lover as some handy archetypes for looking at men's personal developments. And I've got a system that I created as a counterpart to that, which is the queen, guardian, oracle, and the courtesan as uh, feminine archetypes. And I do have some really cool ideas as to how we could use these to help us both in our personal relationships and also some of the information that we've already talked about in a way to kind of create better structures for society as a whole and actually use even things like that, that fundamental difference between men and women and the socialist and capitalist tendencies, instead of looking at those as to, uh, two economic systems that are in conflict with one another, um, they actually might work really well if we just understood that, you know, women kind of fulfill one part of it, men fulfill another part of it. And if we stop trying to be identical the way that more of the modern feminism stuff has tried to make us, we could actually be much more effective in our complementary skills and, uh, you know, make a lot of progress in a lot of those areas that you're talking about, all those uh, things that, you know, are, are potentially threatening our whole civilization as it stands. And, uh, you know, in order to, to get back to the ability to really work together, um, you know, through what it would take to uh, create more tribal cohesiveness on a really on a global scale. um, To me, that's what it's all leading to going all the way back from the beginning of evolution to the future of humanity. So I definitely look forward to talking more about these topics in the future. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, the whole goal, I think, for all of us is uh, that, especially those of us in the functional health, ancestral health worlds, is 
how do we really just become a happy, healthy, cooperative species once again, and <laughs> say like we are in our little various uh, sects of society and our little mini tribes that we pop up. But, you know, we were living with 8 billion people on the earth and how can we all make a, a place that's happy and healthy for all of us rather than these big uh, disparities between you know, certain people having a ton of resources, other people having hardly any. I feel like a lot of these these ideas you're speaking about are really going to be uh, pretty pretty key in in getting back to a place of cooperation and health as a species, not just as these little micro communities, uh, which are great, and we have to beta test these ideas on small scale. Um, but I think there's a much bigger bigger reach and bigger uh, application of this. So I really appreciate that. Um, and until yeah. next time, uh, and uh, historically, uh, oh, uh, yeah. historically, you know, it's one of the things that has brought the most people together is uh, is around religion. So I think it'll be quite interesting if this concept of evolutionary design as a belief system could be the uh, the unifying mechanism to to uh, bring people together to understand and like to actually, you know. Uh, have have a cohesive um, framework for what it is that we all have in common and uh, you know again bringing together people as well as solving our day-to-day -day problems on those small scales so I just think there's a lot of opportunity so yeah Definitely. thanks well until next time uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you and connect with you and find your work uh, all the important pieces there yeah, that'd be great. So I have a website at recivilizedwoman.com. And I'm also posting a lot of my content now on Patreon. Uh, I believe you mentioned in the beginning. So it's patreon.com slash recivilization. And um, those would be the top two places to find me right now. And I've got some talks posted on there and lots more things coming in the future. Great. So. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for joining me. You're, as I mentioned, one of my my dearest friends in the functional medicine world, and I always appreciate your perspectives on everything and enjoy our conversations. And I'm glad that we were able to put this together to share for people today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the ACES Audio Podcast again. And until next time, I'm Chad T. Grant signing off. Cheers. <laughs>